Hello and welcome to a new episode of Vodka O'Clock, uh, brought to you by AmberUnmasked.com. I'm Amber Love. Special thanks to my Patreon backers who allow this to happen through their contributions every month. You can go to patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked. And um, among the rewards that you get is early access to the Cat Detective case files. And the cats now have their own website. So you can go there to catdetectivecases.com and, and read the, all of the year's worth of unlocked files. Um, we're in, uh, we just hit our 300th case of the cats investigating things in the yard in the house and, and around New Jersey. It's so funny. So, um, so that's where we are with the, the cats and, um, we are going to get into it today with a very intriguing and I find fascinating subject. We're going to be, I just want to take the author's notes herself. I'm talking to Judy Wilmore today, and she was kind enough in her, her book to give content warning um, that says this book contains descriptions of gambling, torture, murder, in public execution, there are themes of religious persecution, infidelity, and witchcraft. So um, Judy is here to talk about the menagerie, which takes us back to the 17th century, and uh, particularly in France. So Judy, it is exciting to have you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's um, go way back to why this book, um, you felt like you had to write this? Well, since I was a little girl, I wanted to write the great American novel. So as it turned out, this isn't exactly an American novel. Um, I stumbled upon the story years and years ago, um, reading Will Durant, History of Civilization. Uh, who wrote about the poison scandal in the court of Louis XIV. It was like a small part of a very large book on history. And it said that the king's mistress had been accused of poison and witchcraft and having a black mass celebrated over her naked body. And I was totally entranced and was like, I don't know if she did it. Did she do it? Did she not? So... Over the years, I, I just kept digging. And this is so long ago, this is before the internet. So I acquired what books I could. Finally, in the 1980s, I said, I got to write this book, but I don't know French. So I went back to college and I took French. So I accomplished that. As I did that, I went from a career as a reporter to investigative reporter. And because I didn't have a journalism school degree, there were very few jobs. So I became a private detective investigating insurance fraud. And I did that for 20 years. And then I absolutely had to make a complete difference in my life. The insurance laws changed. The insurance companies were no longer hiring private detectives. They were only going inside their house. I dropped everything, left Pasadena where I was born and grew up, went, moved to New Mexico 
Las Vegas, New Mexico, and decided I'm going to go to college. I want to be a psychotherapist, but I want to be an anthropologist. Now what do I do? So fortunately, the the admissions officer said, you can do both. You can have a double major. So I worked on the double major, and then I found the local writers group. And there I was in the middle of a writers group, and they were all very supportive, and I started writing. So that was back in 1996. And the the beginning of the internet. So even though I was going to college, I kept reading. With the internet, all of a sudden, primary sources, people who had been at Versailles, who saw everything, who wrote letters and diaries, all of their stuff wound up available through interlibrary loan. So hot damn. Yeah, and, how fantastic. Yeah. So I even brought my own paper and I photocopied everything. And every time I was able to get to use bookstores, I immediately went to the French section and bought it out. So I got a degree, a master of science in clinical psychology. And my bachelor's is in psychology and another bachelor's in Native American studies. So as part of this, oh, I also have a degree. My minor is in religious studies. And then in religious studies, I studied um, not just formal religion, but folk tales, witchcraft, et cetera, et cetera. So in, there I was with all this massive material embarking on a career. You, I, you can imagine how long it took me to get this yes. thing done. So along the way, I kept reading and writing and reading and writing. My first drafts were terrible, but I just kept going and I got better. And then a few years ago, I found myself with 640 pages. It's like, oh shit, now what do I do? That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's hefty. That, that, that was way too hefty. And no, I couldn't divide it up into two books. It, that wouldn't work. So um, edited it down. I met my publisher, Jeff Habiger of Artemisia Press. And he helped me narrow the focus a little bit. The problem was an embarrassment of riches. There were so many people who got caught up in this poison scandal um, that were accused and sometimes falsely accused that that uh, th- there was just so much to write about. So as I went along, I had to, I'm still figuring out, did she or didn't she? And that was where my training in psychology helped me a lot and helped me come to my conclusions that helped me finish the book. Fantastic. Um, so the affair of the, the poisons or the, you know, the Correct. poison uh, affair of King Louis the Fourteenth, um, mind you, this is uh, probably still the same today. But you know, the king c- could have as many mistresses as he wanted, and and did, um, and did, <laughs> and you know, STIs were just you know whatever. Um, so many children, so many children, <laughs> and um, 
So I will absolutely probably destroy their names. And I'm very grateful that you included a list at the beginning of the menagerie with all of the cast because I was like, I was so intimidated. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm the kind of reader who can read a book this with all of these names that I'm not familiar with and it's historical. And I was so worried about about myself getting through it but I was a few pages in and I was so completely mesmerized by our main character the mistress Athenais maybe Athenais Athenais and um I was so just drawn to her because we start out the book and she's very young and naive and but you could tell the gears going in her brain I was I couldn't I didn't want to put it down I was like oh my god she's fascinating I just you know I felt like I was literally there with her as she grew up and went through all this Mm. shit and you know (laughs) um but uh, you know as you said there's a, a huge cast that you had to deal with as a writer narrowing down there were if I read correctly, something like, um, like over 200 arrests or something, Correct. but there were like o- over 400 suspects at one mm-hmm. point. I mean, this is a monstrous case. And, um, you know, we were dealing with witchcraft and sorcery and poisoning. And then in the background, there's this case about forgery. So, uh, and mind you, this is just... Versailles, and yet this was going on in Italy. It's going on in New York, well, New England in Salem. Um, so it's going on like all over the place. But I don't ever remember hearing about this. I mean, maybe, and I did take French in high school, but I don't remember hearing this history. <laughs> so I want to explain the title. And it's called the Menagerie. Uh, There was, at Versailles, a real menagerie. It looked like a little castle, complete with kind of a moat, you know, and it had towers, and people would go there and sip wine and sit around and look at the creatures in the cages. And the courtiers at court were trapped at court, just like animals in a menagerie. They had to be there. They had to circle the king. He demanded it. And if they didn't show up, they would get no promotions, no extra money, no status. They would be uh, forgotten. So that was that is why I called it the menagerie. Because as wealthy as they were, they were trapped. Another subtext that I didn't, I mean, I was deep, deep into the book and then then pop up more books written by uh, women uh, sociologists, anthropologists. They got into this because it's about women being trapped. They were at the mercy of their fathers, their brothers, their husbands. They had absolutely no power. Even though they had all this money and the beautiful clothes, they had no power at all. And some of these women, some of the rich 
at least one of the rich ones, more than I know of the poor ones, had been raped. They had been molested repeatedly by their family members and retreated into witchcraft uh, as a way to deal, as a way to find some kind of power in themselves. And of course, they wound up hating their family. And one of the people here, the Marquise de Brenvière, she, she, she split. By the way, as a psychotherapist, I work, I have people with multiple personalities. And I am convinced she did because she had a part that was truly evil. She had been raped by her brothers. So she turned around and poisoned them all. Mm-hmm. And her father and the relatives, etc. She she got quite good at it until she was caught. So she was tortured and then revealed this other part that's pretty chilling. And that, by the way, is documented. So she could have been the central character, but there were so many to choose there from. There were so many, yeah. 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 See and her, just, I knew she what I knew what she did, but a ten right. not so much. Right, and so the the female authors that you refer to, I know there is a book, um, two thousand three, by Anne Somerset, but um, Frances Massacre is that a woman? Frances, yes, indeed, and she was, she was the first book. Well, I read about it first, the history of civilization. Then I found the book by Massacre, and it is a treasure trove. And she, yeah, that that book was just central, and I I expanded from there. And she she reported some twists and turns that other people missed, and so I I'm I'm very very grateful to her to her memory. What's wild to me, because I'm also, you know, I sucked into true crime stories like everybody mm-hmm. else, but I, I mean, I have always been um, the now, you know, since the 80s, DNA collection and DNA databases, and now there's the CODA system. But beyond the the federal government that we have here, beyond our system, there are the... Uh, websites that are commercial of people submitting their dna to find their ancestors Mm -hmm. or their or their ethnic origins Mm -hmm. and that you give a lot of up when you when you submit to these companies that's right and here you you know authors like you have done this when we're not talking about something where you could type in a dna map and get results and track lineages this is fascinating <laughs> this is like you know uh, just the the hard work that has to go into this i mean atenice had um bore seven children i think or eight and when one died um oh my goodness the and just like you said, the inbreeding. And- <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! The family trees. I, 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 I had to keep go- referring back to family trees. Here's the interesting part: because of the French Revolution, 
uh, Louis' great-grandchildren. They, they were all beheaded, okay? All right, so the French royal line was wiped out, but not her line. Sh her children have carried on that royal line. Well, what's interesting is that she was already part of the Bourbons who were, right? They were well- No, no, she was, no. Her family was just as old as the Bourbons. Actually, oh, they older. were just as old. Okay. okay. Yeah, they were just as old. Boy, did that count for status. Although it didn't count much for money. You see? see? Yeah, okay. but she, she, she had the lineage to be his mistress. I see. She did not have a lineage to be his wife. Wives were chosen for kings. And and that was an interesting part. And uh, you can you can tell me if this was, you know, through your research or fictionalized that her husband refused to divorce her. Right. And obviously, she had no power as a woman. To That's correct. And, and neither did the king to order a divorce. I mean, this is a Catholic country. Mm, All right. Yeah. And the divorce was basically to settle property when people separated. It was not recognized in the eyes of the church. Okay. And so uh, she mused at one point, I, don't, I can't even remember if I put it in the book, why can't he have a harem like a sultan? By the way, a, a, at least a, one sultan came to visit. He was the one that brought coffee. Everybody was very grateful oh, to him yes. for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But she was kind of thinking, gee, I could be the head of a harem here, you know, even though I don't want to share him. You know, it's a shame that I cannot have status. Oh, yeah. 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 And going from that uh, that subject of the church there's there are a few chapters here that are very important well the whole thing feels so important but the from one year to the next of easter starting with easter mm -hmm. you know it, he's advised by you know one of the priests there are several right. that are very important to the book um that he's got to knock it off <laughs> that the king's he, the king's right. behavior just he's got to right. knock it off he's too obsessed with this one mm -hmm. woman mm -hmm. and they need to part he can have other flings <laughs> that's oh, yeah ridiculous. i oh the hypocrisy <laughs> yeah and she was married you see yes so yes. that's a double adultery it was almost expected for a king to screw around yeah. As long as it wasn't serious and as long as it, they weren't married. Not that, that he didn't do it anyway on occasion. He did, he did yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, chambermaids here and there. And um, the the whole idea that this the queen is here and she's got her own thing going on. Right. And, you know, she gets special attention and stuff. But when he shows up at, you know, the weekly extravaganza where they're mm -hmm. all dancing and everything, um, you know, he gets to show up with a mistress and everybody parts like the Red Sea and bows. Right. And, you know, depending on who his 
his primary mistresses at the time. That's right. That, that changes. <laughs> right. And right. yet the poor queen is just like, yeah, she, hey, <laughs> I'll be okay. over here with the uh, fortune teller. She, <laughs> okay, that, that Marie Therese, a.k.a. Maria Teresa, she was from Spain. This was an arranged marriage. And she was a Habsburg. If you get into the Habsburgs. Oh, goodness. The one all, tree branch. <laughs> oh, my God. They, uh, uh, many of them were mentally not kidding. Yes. She, her, her intelligence was somewhere a little bit south of normal. And she was, she was dumpy. She was not bright. Uh, and there was not a thing she could do. It was really very sad for her. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had numerous mistresses, uh, starting, you know, since he was a teenager. He wasn't about to stop. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is is how there must have been something about him. And there's just people that are like that, um, where you don't necessarily think of them uh, as good looking, but there's something about them that's mm -hmm. magnetic. And uh, a, a tennis even... Uh, refers to him as stinky because he's unwashed and refuses to bathe. Oh, that, that even more than most people, he was yeah. afraid of taking baths. Yeah. And there was this scene where the blow up, all of this was recorded. I wrote this down word for word, uh -huh. you know, it, it was like when you had something exciting happen in court, it would be witnessed by a crowd and they would all scurry off to their apartments, put pen to paper and they would write letters and they would write in their diaries. And I have them all. <laughs> so I, th that's why this thing grew to 640 pages. I mean, it was an mm. embarrassment of riches. It really was. Yeah. So he's like this man that's foul and, <laughs> and <laughs> so, so wanted, like there was just, I mean, I guess he was a re really good in bed. I don't know because no, uh, the, no, no, he was powerful. <laughs> He was he, just powerful. That, that's what it was all about. He was powerful. Yeah. And um, so thinking, and I and I'm sure this this happens to women and anybody who's who's pregnant today is, you know, here she's in this situation of, oh my God, she gets pregnant. And then she gets pregnant again. She's just like constantly pregnant. And right. she thinks, you know, and then she gets all this baby weight and this is a time in fashion history that I simply don't know how anybody survived the amount of fabric and <laughs> oh, yes. you know like metal and whalebone that went into get I mean I there's a YouTube channel about a woman who does um getting into Victorian outfits so a whole different time period. And that seems easy compared to this time period. I mean, I, the, um, the layers. The, la the layers. So, so uh, if I could explain the layers, I, I, I don't think that early they went in for corsets. But what you had, the first thing you put on was your chemise, which would have been very lightweight linen. Okay. That was the part you could wash. You could, there was no dry cleaning. You could, it, it was very difficult to safely wash silk. 
So you would have this chemise. That was the one that went to the laundry. Over that went the skirt. So the skirt got fitted on. Then the bodice that matched the skirt. So it looked like one dress, but it wasn't. So the bodice went over that. Then that was fastened up in the back. And I think there was some pulling of, yeah. of laces and things like that. When Atenais was headed to bed with the king, which was in the afternoon, she had to have her very helpful maid unloose her stays. Yeah. Yes. So... So yeah, that's how all of and mind that. you, the, it's so funny the just the descriptions. Uh, there were times when I really did crack up when she'd be looking at other women and judging them about how their, you know, their dress barely covered their nipples because they had <laughs> absolutely as much as legally possible. That's right, splooshing out the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that was real. <laughs> that so was funny. real. Yeah, because yeah, if you if you're just wandering through like again different time period, but the, the the Renaissance Fair, and you wonder how why people wear their corsets differently uh-huh. or their bodices differently, it's like, well, sometimes they that's, just were. That, <laughs> was, that's correct. Yes, and the, there's no bra underneath. You expect the outfit to do the job. Yeah, and she she was well endowed, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I, I can imagine after many children that uh, her curves were in place. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, her whole family was plump. Okay. And I think this was a kind of a genetic thing in addition to I'm sure she ate more than she should. And it was Francis Mossaker that raised the question, what about alcohol? Yeah, and I was going to say, she's very drunk. In, yeah, and that nobody else mentioned that, but but Mossaker commented about her daughters, who were when they grew up were falling down drunks, oh. and then I remembered her father, who was known to be an alcoholic, and I said, okay, now I think I understand her terrible, terrible temper. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how I, I wove all that in. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, her, her, her temper is like, um, outrageous when mm-hmm. she's jealous and right uh, to, to find this, I mean, we're talking about a real person, but we're also talking about her as a character and what, was it like for you to handle and just um, mold her the way that you felt was appropriate because she could either come off very unlikable or sympathetic depending on whose hands she was in. And, and then we get to her relationship with um, a very young girl, Sylvie. We'll talk about Sylvie. Um, And so she was either this horrible person as a protagonist or, or just like a victim of her circumstances. You the thing about fiction is that you can be typing away and all of a sudden these people are talking to you and all you're doing is taking dictation. Mm-hmm. And I had these two people meet there. There is, 
young, innocent Sylvie, who winds up being the embroiderer, to a Tenai sister-in-law. And they meet, and all of a sudden, it was like, oh, look at this. Uh, okay. And it became a way for Tenai to redeem herself. It was, she could be kind to this little teenager. Yeah, she was and like a little could, lamb, and she was, you know, gets into her own awful situation. But I loved their relationship. Yeah, it was, it, and that, that, yeah, that that's where the ending of the book came in, which I don't want to give away. No, we won't <laughs> give away. But Atenais, uh, you know, comes off as this, you know, like I said, she's could be a terrible drunk and right. you know fights with the king openly in front of people and then he has to drag her away and um you know sends her off to her own place either like a whole city away or mm-hmm. in another apartment or chateau and um so here she is getting developing with this reputation as being impossible to deal oh, with yeah. she, ter- no she was i'm going to say it she was a bitch that yeah. right Oh, oh, I mean, and the French, the French term for it. Yeah. Oh, my God. That it's, got thrown at her. You are a dog's whore. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, you do get to learn some French in the book. You get to learn yeah. the, the, the curse words. and. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which you won't learn on Duolingo, which I'm doing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for, so for Sylvie, so I, I, you answered perfectly how, what I, I wanted to say and ask about her is, you know, what does she represent to, um, Atenais and, and she's like this innocent person, this young girl who's starting to follow the same path. At that mm-hmm. she did and she's like I gotta save this kid and you know she's so talented and then there was Sylvie comes with her own um little side story there uh was it the Huguenots yes um, yes and how they were suddenly like just gonna commit genocide like we have to get rid of these people and and you know Atenais is is the the one person bold enough to go up to the to the the king and 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 his staff and say, "What are you doing? These are the most talented artisans in our entire right. country." Right. And see this. What stunned me. There's a toward at right about the end of the book. There was a meeting. Um, to judge Atenais. And. On that day, and this is true, there was a discussion of, it's, it was almost a pogrom, like against the Jews, but it was against the Huguenots. And that was actually going on, and the king got upset. On that day, all of this is, is, is for real. And where this happened was where Atenais came from. Her family uh, had all their property in this area in, in Western France. And they, she knew many Huguenots and they, they were her people, 
even though she was a devout Catholic. She, she really cared about this. One of the more interesting things, Mossiger said, it's alleged she wrote her own book. She wrote her own journal, but it has disappeared. Well, guess what popped up on the internet? I got it. And you, However, you checked it out. Yes. Oh, I have. Oh, yeah. But here's the problem. It's not in French. Somewhere uh, around 1900, some British guy translated and put into print this book. And because we don't have access to the French, there is no way to prove that she wrote it. But I read it carefully, and I'm here to tell you, if someone wanted to forge her memoirs, they wouldn't have written this. There's a whole chapter about her brother who goes out to sail in this big battle. You know, it's like, you wouldn't put that in there. And even misspelled the name of the witch. And she was known for her bad spelling. Oh. See, I, I, I know it was her. And so I picked some of these details and in there, she kind of puffed herself up saying that she went to the king and pleaded for the Huguenots. She did that. So I, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. You yeah. know? That was one one thing about her personality was, um, like, it, even the men around him would just kiss his ass and, you know, be like, oh my God, it's the king. You don't dare right. say anything. And... Um, you know, she found herself as empowered as she could be and tried very hard to, in that regard, to, mm -hmm. to just at least do some good somewhere. I mean, because right. there's the whole poison plot and, um, you know, I love the, the details of that for like, I mean, the witch who's called love was on because uh, which incidentally means the neighbor that's right? correct um yeah so um so it was just like oh here's your neighborhood witch and um you know the the they had it at least it came off to me as when love was on is taken into custody and she's being tortured um that she wouldn't give up that name. Like there was one That's right. name she, she wouldn't say. Right. And that was really pivotal. Yeah. Even when she was tortured, she wouldn't. Whereas other suspects were only too happy. Because eventually what, what happened is the people who pointed their fingers at Atenais they wouldn't be tortured because right. you see there was there were laws about torture and you're going to torture whole... see th this yeah. is where it got very delicate yeah because if and... you're going to torture someone there has to be a transcript if there's a transcript it's a written record oh shit we don't yeah. want certain names in that transcript now do we yeah and you so see, there was there, there was like this like unofficial thing going on on the side where there was like, we're not going to have the judges in this room. That's right. 
So I, I want to bring up La Remy, you know, uh, yeah. he, the lieutenant general of police. And he was appointed by the king to be both a civil and criminal judge. So th- this is this is before Napoleonic law. And so what was going on here is that he was in charge of Paris, the civil laws and the criminal laws. He was the one that set up street sweepers and street lights and regulating prostitution and regulating how low a woman's neckline could go when she was in church. Uh, uh, So he was put in charge of this. And as a result, he, he became, he became famous. So I have what he wrote. It fills three volumes, all the notes. And he did the best he could in a very difficult situation. When it came to this investigation, he had worked with a panel of judges. And then towards the end, it got so sensitive that the king said, you can't tell the other judges what's going on. Lauren E. got really ticked. And it, 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 his, his opinion is recorded. And he had to go on alone. And it wasn't right. And he knew morally this wasn't right. But as, as the story begins, we find out that Louis's greatest enemy was Holland. It was the Netherlands. And they had a free press. And the free press was having a field day with Louis's private life and his relatives' private affairs. And Louis was just like, oh, shit, we got to stop this. And if someone, if they had found out about the poison scandal, it would have been all over Europe. So that's why he put the kibosh on this. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, he was afraid that, that someone was going to leak it. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty impressive that obviously today their secrets are very hard to keep. Um, Back then, I guess you had to deal with, uh, you know, sending something by letter and getting in a coach and Mm -hmm. traveling in order to spread gossip. Um, But even amongst themselves, I can't imagine how even historians can figure out what was true when you've got the uh, do you say Lesage or Lesage? Lesage. Lesage character who was a one-time partner of the witch love was on mm-hmm. and um and he throws her under the bus <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah he's, he's like you know so here's a woman who's used to catering to literally everybody including every you know all the women of the court mm-hmm. and you know there w- was a time when you went to court having someone reading tarot cards and you know palm readings and telling fortunes and stuff that was okay they were like okay we're not calling that sorcery we're letting that slide right right we're, you know we're just gonna punish the people who are doing like black magic mm-hmm. um so this rumor that was started about La Voisin having baby bones buried in her yard. Right. Mm-hmm. 
and there were bones in her stove because there was a stove uh, outside. Like, was there any foundations at all? Yes. 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 A couple of people told Laurini, look in her garden. And that is where the aborted babies were buried. She burned them in an outdoor oven. Okay. She had what was called a pavilion, which was like a nice outdoor space, you know, where you would have parties. It would have a roof and so on. And there was an oven there. She did this. Yeah. They found the skeletons of the babies that, that were buried there that had been aborted. Lots of them. Yeah. And this, this was, this was true. This was documented you know, had to be hidden just like today. That's, that's correct. Yeah. That's why she was the friendly neighborhood lady who would help you out of a difficult patch, so to speak. Yeah. And it's, you know, so within the court themselves, there's, you know, there's a request of, oh my gosh, you have to get me these herbs. You have to get me these herbs from her. I don't, I can't go myself. And uh huh, Right. The desperation for women to yes not have a child that they don't want. Um, it, it it's so just it's interesting how it's hundreds of years later and nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I I work across the street from a Planned Parenthood, and uh, last week because the weather was beautiful. Um, instead of just the, there's usually like three protesters out there for several hours and they stand, they don't, I haven't seen them harass anyone because it's not like a high traffic area, Mm -hmm. but this, the, the sidewalk is not huge. And I remember when I was in college and, you know, protesting for, for the rights there, there was something called the zone of safety and, uh, maybe that's no longer a law because of this. I don't know. But there used to be a, a particular, you had to stay a certain distance from the door so that patients didn't have to deal with you. That, that's correct. Yeah. And um, so last week, I guess, because the weather was nice, the Catholics decided they had a nun and a priest and um, a whole bunch more people than usual. And they actually didn't even stay in place. They actually walked around the, the you know, the block mm-hmm. with their signs and went over the crosswalk and mm-hmm. stuff. And I was just like, I was like, do you have nothing else to do but interrupt somebody's health care? Yes. To them, like, it's their, it's their divine mission. I, yeah. And I do understand that. Like, yeah. you know, hey, you have know. your, your, connection to your to god and that's amazing and but it's like telling someone else and forcing them uh, you know not to take robitussin if they're (laughs) you know it's like it's like oh my god i have a cough i'm gonna take some robitussin what and smack it out of my hand you know (laughs) Uh, i i i hear you yes it's yeah I, i find it bewildering sometimes and then um, speaking of healthcare, and uh, you know, how did you get through your pandemic years? How were you all right? Oh, no, trapped in the oh, house? oh I was yeah, fine. no, no. I mean, uh, as a psychotherapist, I went completely online, so I was home for two for two years, basically. Yeah, and 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 I still do some telemedicine, but I also go to an office. So it, that was cool. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, I, it's, 
it's just interesting that, um, you know, I guarantee if the sign above the door just said, um, you know, doctor's office, there wouldn't be protesters. No, no. And, 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 you know, back in, in history, women had zero power. They couldn't even sign a contract really. But what, Mm -hmm. but another thing did happen uh, that I picked up through memoirs. Uh, women who were not way high up, but uh, maybe uh, that they had property. Women were managing. They were managing properties and investing money. It was really interesting. That was really, often the men were gone because when a king had a war, guess who had to go? whether you liked it or not. So a lot of the nobility, the men, they had to go charging off to war, leave the women behind. A lot of these women, were they did have the power to invest and I think to buy and sell property by, by leave of their husbands. So they had that much control, thank goodness. Of, of course, they were married. And that power was given to them. But I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. For Atenais, she, her husband was, you know, out there on, I don't know, with some branch, right? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was out uh, at the Spanish border fighting brigands, you know, robbers and so on and that kind of thing. Yeah. Thank God he was out of town. Yes. Yeah. So he was far away and yet... Um, uh, you know, still had the nerve to be upset with her being. The oh king's yeah. Um, didn't he? Did he steal her first baby? One of her babies? Or no? Here's what happened. To. She had two children with him, oh. and and when she took off with the king, he got the kids. I see. She, okay. okay, she didn't. God, I can't remember what happened to the little girl. Her it's, son was eventually, many years later as an adult, allowed to be present at court. That was an interesting thing. But no, her her husband, uh, because a lot of water had gone under that bridge. This was after she was the king's mistress. This, This boy was grown up. And so he was allowed to come to court. So her children by her husband were taken. And there is a scene in which she's pregnant uh, by the king and, and the husband comes back and he tries to rape her. That's documented. That yeah. is documented. And he claims he has every right to do it. She's his right. wife. Right. Uh, There's... Not exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so as we're you know, this is a different time, uh, 17th century. And, uh, you know, at the, there's even um, towards the end, the arranging marriage of like some very young kids. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Those poor kids, they're like, oh, my God, well, I have to worry about which fork I'm using, and I don't even want to be here. 
Yes, it, it was interesting. They went from the nursery right to the dinner table. Mm. It's like dinner was a formal affair. So these, I, I don't know when this happened, maybe at the age of 13, 12. There they had to be taught which fork to use and the proper things to say. And I'm sure that they were trained by their governesses, nursemaids, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, this was hard. This was hard. You had to know who to curtsy to, who not to curtsy to. Could you sit down in this person's presence? Did you have to stand? How do you address a prince of the blood? On and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's another another world. It's another world. I cannot imagine trying to memorize all that. I mean, no. like, it must be like our, our American debutante must be like a piece of cake course Absolutely. compared, to, compared right. to getting through royalty. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, like even uh, like as an American, like I can't, I can't figure, I don't, I don't call them Duke and Duchess. I'm like, you know, Prince Harry and <laughs> Prince William. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah. They're sons. They're the prince. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's our our fairy tale version over here. It's not a fairy tale anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. Um, the the children, though, I was very interested in when their governess became uh, such a friend of the king. Oh and, yeah, and how. I, then I started to get a bigger picture because there were so many children, um, how she might not have actually been the one, like I'm thinking of a nanny picking up the kids, sticking them in a buggy and going, no, you know, not exactly. there's a staff, there's a staff, there's a staff to do people. that. Yeah. But so she I, became, I didn't realize that. Yeah. She became the mother figure and Louis fell in love with her because she didn't have a temper. She she was was very sweet and she was very smart. And she was a delightful conversationalist and a devout Catholic. And she persuaded Louis to break up with the Tenites. You know, it's like, your majesty, you have a wife. The poor woman, she is devoted to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So her name is Madame de Maintenon, but the court giggled. And they're, they called her Madame de Maintenon, which means Madam now. In that, now. I was going to say that. Yeah, she's now, the recent, yes. That's right. She's the recent one. But yeah, after all the dust had settled, and a, a few years after my book ends, the queen dies. You know, she. I don't think she was even hit 50. The king had to remarry. He married the governess. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, one of his mistresses gets so depressed over being cast aside. She goes in, into a convent and tries to warn Atenees about, That's like, right. look, you got to get out. We were friends, man. We were friends. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That and, was Louise. Yes. Louise, yeah. She was so sweet. And then... um. But yeah, then Madame de uh, Maintenon, 
I I wasn't surprised, but I kind I was kind of was because I was thinking the same things that you mentioned before. Like, couldn't he have just chosen any wife he wanted, but not if she, not if she was still married and right? Yeah, yeah. So he yeah. could do what he wanted. That his marriage to the governess was never publicly announced. But people kind of figured out what was going on. Yeah, by the attention he paid to her. And so, of course, not being of royal blood and et cetera, et cetera she had her, she gained enormous status simply because people figured out, oh boy, and we need to be on her good side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have to mention Madame de Sevigny because I adore her. She was okay. the letter writer. And so a lot of the juicy stuff in the book came comes right from her. And she she had to be a Gemini. She she just sparkled. <laughs> and, and it was so cool. I that that's why I would bring her in to conversations and so on because she was an eyewitness to a lot of this. And so her letters uh comprised two volumes. And they are the big go-to for what was going on at court at that time. So she was the one who recorded the gold dress, which really happened. There really was a gold yes, dress. Yes, I meant to ask about the gold dress. The gold oh, dress. Oh, yeah. Notes. Really was a gold dress. And I had to put that in there. So, yeah. And that, that whole scene, that gambling scene was a compilation of various things that happened all of which were documented. Yeah. We had, I say we, um, I'm part of Sisters in Crime, which is- Oh, yes, as I'm a member. Okay, as uh, as a fellow sister. So um, a few days ago, there was a speaker who talked about uh, at the 19th century poisons specifically, and the only things that they were really dealing with was arsenic and strychnine. And mm-hmm. and arsenic itself is an entire study. Right. And um, so to get a particular green of fabrics and other, you know, for other dyes, arsenic could be used. Mm-hmm. So I, I was wondering, um, with part of the poison plot, when there was speculation that um, objects could be poisoned other than things that you ingest objects like, you know, a piece of clothing or, you know, I've seen it in, I I saw in, uh, you know, to, to always nerd out and bring things back to one of my favorite shows, psych. um, (laughs) There was some uh, powdered snake venom inside a, a hood of a secret society and somebody inhaled it and they died. Um, so it wasn't exactly like contact, but that guy inhaled it. So was there in the in this poison plot um, evidence of things that weren't ingested being poisoned? Like yes, the, you know, there there were stories. See, if you wanted to poison a relative, you didn't want it to look like poison. So. Uh, this is what the Marquise de Brenvier, I think this was one of her poisonings. This is where all the talk went, that you could put arsenic 
on someone's underclothes. And uh, allegedly, that would cause sores, all right? Make you look like you had syphilis. Oh, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. But see, arsenic is tasteless and odorless. That was the preferred method. So what the Marquise did, she dosed her family very gradually, right. little bit by little bit. She And she learned how to do it because lovely lady, she volunteered her time at the hospital. So she would be tending to poor people, dosing them with arsenic, calculating how long it took to slowly wither away. Uh, Until finally with her brother's dad and her father dad, oh, I think something's going on here. Yeah, yeah. So, Yeah. yeah, so arsenic was rat poison and it was totally legal. And finally, at the whole end of all of this, um, after the end of my book, uh, you had to have a license to to be dealing in arsenic for rat poison. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's one of the things that was mentioned in this Sisters in Crime uh, lecture was that there was a ledger. So you actually had to sign your name right. that you were buying it mm-hmm. and, and write why. So, yeah. I mean, Controlled who's going to write? Because I hate yeah. my husband. You know? Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Because people are always honest. You know? <laughs> um, so before I, I let you go, because this has been fascinating. And, uh, you know, like I, I said, it's an entire an entire course that we could get into and and just study at the collegiate level mm-hmm. of this poisoning plot and the king's affairs um so first of all uh what are you enjoying now what are you what do you read or watch or listen to what what do you do in your spare time what spare time what spare time (laughs) she's also an astrologer folks yes yes i am an astrologer and i'm writing a sequel to the menagerie called the flight and it will feature sylvie Oh, and again, it's based on fact. And it's about the Huguenots. They have to get out of France. And if you tried to leave, it was, think bad things would happen. But as we know from history, thousands of them did make their way out. But how? And Sylvie, uh, the embroiderer, uh, get, gets her dream job uh, working at Gobelin, which is the manufacturing that made all those beautiful things for Versailles. And and all most of the workers there are Huguenot, and they have to get out. And that's what she finds herself in the middle of. So that's the book I'm writing. Oh, I, I just found her so sweet and just wanted to save her, too, because <laughs> she got mixed up in bad shit. <laughs> um, but she, you know... Like you said, a sweet and innocent artist, just um, amazing. So do you um, uh, have other f- uh, favorite authors? Because your your daughter is the one who got me into Dan Brown and Margaret Atwood. So um, <laughs> I'm wondering what you read. Oh, my gosh. I read so widely. One book I just read, it was recommended by... Uh, New York Times, it's called The End of Drum Time. And it's about the Sami. 
uh, in Lapland about 1850. And it is absolutely fascinating. This is a culture I've, I've heard about, and, but I really wanted to read about and about how their whole culture was ended with the introduction of Christianity mm. and the, how they were herding reindeer and they were shamans. And it, it, it's just, they were past tense. It's a fascinating book. Really love that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I tried to spread as a writer they tell you you know oh you got to read your genre read your genre and I'm like I got to read outside my genre yeah I've I uh, you know I like sprinkle it in there and you know in in Mm -hmm. doses but yeah I mean I just put up a glowing review because it's a book I anybody who's from Jersey or knows people from Jersey I just want to buy this book for everybody I know um (laughs) <laughs> called Ver- Verena Palladino's Jersey Italian Love Story by Terry Flynn Defino. And that book just blew me away. It's actually not about murder and crime or anything. <laughs> okay. It's just an amazing family drama. And, um, but so good because there's, there's so much wonderful um, humor and sweetness and love in it. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, but I had to give up on watching The Handmaid's Tale because I was just like, this is just getting too it's stressful. It's disturbing, isn't it? It, it was. I got to a, a certain point and I'm just, I took a pause and then I went back to it and then I took another pause and I was like, oh, no, I just can't get back to it. I'm just, because I never read the second book, but I read the, you know, the first book. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, too real. I, it it is. It's far too real and relatable. And I watch things that are very much not. You know, like I mean, right. I watch cop some cop dramas too, but mm-hmm. the way that they are on TV is not like real life either. So I'm like, oh, look how friendly the police on TV are. You know. <laughs> <laughs> have Have you read Louise Penny? Not yet. It's oh, actually uh, okay. in my catalog, though. It's in my my book catalog. Yes, because <laughs> she is the queen now okay yeah of of mystery writers and her main character inspector gamash i would notice he's kind of like la renee great you know the law enforcement officer who's wise and it and yeah yeah I, i i love her book she's got 18 and i've read them all and she she's a good person she really did you, is. Did you read the one that she co-wrote with Hillary Clinton? Yes, I did. Actually. Okay, that was that was the first one that I wanted to read, but yes, I, it, yeah. they're just like piling up in. The- <laughs> they, they are, but you could. That's a standalone. Okay, you, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she is absolutely amazing. Yes, that's great. Um, so, where can people find more information about? You, um, I know the publisher for the Menagerie is Artemisia Publishing, so they have their own website. Um, that's just I'm on Amazon. Uh, I, I, uh, for this month, uh, my Kindle is marked down to 99 cents. Nice. <laughs> okay. And, and I have it available by Kindle and by paperback on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okay. And I have a website. So, okay, is that your name? Just mm-hmm. Judy Wilmore? Judy Wilmore, author. 
Okay. So if you want to check, if you want to go into Amazon, there I'm not the only book called a menagerie. So you need to put right. in my name and the menagerie, and then you come up with the book. That's the problem that I have too. I'm like, first of all, my name is very common. And then second of all, I, my first book is called Cardiac Arrest. And if you type Cardiac Arrest, you not only get another murder mystery called Cardiac Arrest, but there's also science books of Cardiac oh, Arrest. Of course. Of course. So, yes. Yes. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta really look behind <laughs> me, unfortunately. And I know mm -hmm. that's the reason that some people pick very specific pen names because they know that they're the only one that's going to be out there. Right. Um, right. Like, well, I guess I thought I was, uh, I don't know. I, I just like chopped off my last name and I was like, well, that's my pen name now. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, all right. So Judy Wilmore, um, thank you so much. Is there any social media stuff that you do or you, you let, your helper handle. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that 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 my my daughter is it's, daughter it's is. part of my little publicity team. Yeah. And she, she posts for like, me. Yeah. Yes. Because I, I wrote to her, I was like, hey Judy. And she's <laughs> like, it's me. I'm like, oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I miss you, girl. Love you. <laughs> yeah. Um okay. Well, we will keep an eye out for Sylvie's story. Um mm -hmm. And uh, is there, are you like just starting like early, early stage? I, I kind of early stage. I haven't hit uh, page 100 yet. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because right. I work full time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so you're doing great work and very important work for the, you know, I think everybody needs a mental health champion. Um, so thank you so much. You. And you guys that are listening, um, if you have any questions, let me know. You can, uh, go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked once again to help sponsor the show. You can find my personal blog posts and book reviews, all the stuff that's just about me at amberunmasked.com. I started my own, um, author website too, just because people suggested to do that with just book information. So that's Elizabeth Amber writes, but most importantly is the cat's website. I mean, let's be real catdetectivecases.com. They're the, <laughs> they're, they're the bosses anyway. I'm just staff, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, until next time, stay safe, everybody. Keep washing your hands and doing all of the healthcare that you need to do to take care of yourselves. 